0: Revelation chapter 19. Now, chapter 17 was the destruction of religious Babylon. Chapter 18 was the destruction of financial or economic Babylon. And then today, in chapter 19, is the destruction of military Babylon. And then Jesus' glorious return. We saw a little bit of this rejoicing, Uh, In chapter 18, verse 20, it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And so there's a great sorrow on earth in the tribulation period, but there's a great rejoicing in heaven that God is doing exactly what he said he would do, and he would bring vengeance against those who have wronged people on this planet, in particular wronged believers and so in chapter 19, verse 1, he says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, What? Hallelujah. We've got to try that again here. Okay. <laughs> After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. All right. It's a unique little word. It's actually a universal. Every language in the world has this word added into it. Hallelujah. Yah, referring to Yahweh, a shortened term, God, uh, hallelujah, praise the Lord, is what it's saying. And here it's in the imperative, it's in the command, it's commanding them, praise the Lord. And with a loud shout, us, the multitude, that's us guys, the people that have been raptured in the church, and then also those who have been martyred and uh, in the tribulation period together now they're all rejoicing together we saw them separately rejoicing in chapter 7 and chapter 6 but now together they're all praising the lord in heaven and they're saying hallelujah in the hebrew in the old testament it starts with an h hallelujah but it's the same word hallelujah hallelujah And salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot, uh, which is the city of Babylon we learned last week. Corrupted the earth with her fornications, which is the false religion system that she made up. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, what? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worship God who sat on the throne. Isn't that radical? We're going to be face down next to these radical sheriff and seraphim and all of these radical creatures in heaven. And we're all worshiping together before the throne. And we're saying, Amen. Now, Amen is a term that simply means, so be it, Lord. I'm in agreement with that. We often use it at the end of our prayer. Jesus did in the Lord's Prayer when he taught us to pray. He ended with amen. But we see that word sprinkled throughout the scriptures in the middle of prayers, in the middle of sermons, in the middle of songs. It just means, so be it. I also agree. I also. So if a guy's praying, I'm praying the same thing. Without praying, I'm praying the same thing. So chalk went up for me too, God. I agree with that. And so they all fell down worshiped God and sat on the throne saying amen and Hallelujah. You guys are good, man. You're getting there. So I just want to warm you up because we're going to be doing this pretty regularly once we get to heaven. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And so now we have all the believers together. They're being commanded to praise the Lord. He is great, He is awesome. Everything he's doing is true and it's righteous in his judgment. Now, every king that has ever tried to conquer on this planet, at the core of his heart was self. For his own gain, for his own greed, for his own glory, for his own power. It was for self. And it was unrighteous. But yet when God comes when Jesus comes it's true and it's righteous the core of Christ being is love and everything he does is out of love and here he is judging and it's a blessing it's a healing balm to believers to see true justice come now in Romans 12 he made it clear do not take vengeance your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Bless him. Pray for your enemies. Love them. Do good to them. Vengeance is the Lord's. Now, God doesn't make empty promises. In other words, he doesn't, you know, often as parents will say, oh, no, we'll do that later, kids. Right. You know, we're not going to, but we say that sort of to chill them out. You know, let's go to McDonald's, you know, at 10 in the morning. It's like, oh, maybe we'll go there later when you know you're not. But it's just sort of a, a way to, Chill them out. <clears throat> so God wasn't saying vengeance is mine, like, just chill out. Just love people and don't worry about it. No, he really was planning a day of vengeance. And that vengeance has zero mercy. It's a day of just equity. We cannot do that. It, we're, it's physically impossible. If somebody kills one person or 50 people the most we can do is put them to death. And it's really not an equal punishment to what the grief they put, not only the people they killed, but all of their family. It's not an equal judgment. It's not an equal justice. What do they deserve? To go to a lake of fire of hell, we're weeping and gnashing of teeth, not for just a moment of death, for an eternity of pain and agony and suffering. And God can give them such a punishment. And so that's why God says, if you enact your vengeance, then I'm not going to enact my vengeance. If you keep your hands off, I'll deal with it. And he really meant it. And we wait and we wait and we wait and, Things get more unjust. Things get more evil, wicked. And then finally God steps in because he does not rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. He finally steps in with a true and a righteous judgment. Hold your finger here in Revelation and turn to Romans chapter 2, if you would. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 It says this, Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. He's giving them exactly what they deserve according to their own wicked art and according to their own wicked ways. And it also tells us that he's going to avenge on her the blood of his servants that were shed by her. In 2 Thessalonians, if you had turned there to chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 4, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So you guys in Thessalonica are doing it right. You're being persecuted, but your patience and your faith, you're not repaying evil for evil. You're blessing and doing good even to those who are persecuting you. And so you're making way for the righteous judgment of God. In verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction with the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So he makes it clear here that God has a special vengeance against those who persecuted the church. Now, I might add here that Paul used to be one of those guys. (laughs) If you read in the book of Acts, he was arresting Christians for being Christians, throwing them in prison, even delivering them up to be put to death. And he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm the least of all the saints because I persecuted the church. So it's not saying that this is an unpardonable sin by any means. If a man repents, he's forgiven no matter how great the sin, no matter how numerous the sins. But as we saw here in the book of Revelation, is, this judgment is coming after a long series of incredible opportunities to repent. We had the two witnesses. Elijah and possibly Moses, we don't know who the second one is, they were indestructible for three and a half years preaching the gospel. Then we had the 144,000, 12,000 of each tribe of the Jews who were mighty witnesses throughout the world, Revelation 14. And then we, out of the, A crazy, last-ditch effort, God has an angel that flies through the heavens preaching the everlasting gospel. And what do men do with that? They harden their heart like Pharaoh did, and they curse God because of the plagues that are coming upon the earth. They won't repent, no matter what God does. They're unwilling to repent. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you deserve. I'm so glad God's not giving me what I deserve. He's being completely unfair with me. I deserve to go to hell a thousand times over in the hottest, darkest place. But that's the wonderful thing about Christ. If you repent, He takes your sins and scatters them as far as the east is to the west to never be remembered again. And in His eyes, you're without sin. If you come to Christ and repent and you do it quickly... Well, in verse 6, back in Revelation 19, there in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters. Now, this is God speaking, as we've seen throughout Revelation, other parts of the water, and at the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, What? Hallelujah. Now, this is God commanding the saints. The Lord speaking out, and he's saying, uh, Listen up, guys. The, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Throughout the Bible, God has had this picture of himself as the husband and the believers as his bride in Hosea 2 verse 19 and 20 uh, in Ezekiel 16 in the New Testament 2nd Corinthians 11 Ephesians 5 but also Isaiah 54 a matter of fact in verse 5 he says this Isaiah 54 verse 5 for your maker is your husband and the Lord of hosts is his name your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel and he is called the God of the whole earth. And also in Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now, if you know the Jewish wedding custom, much of what Jesus says about end times clicks. And so if you go back and read Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and you look at the various expressions the Lord uses, he's talking about a Jewish wedding. In the Jewish wedding, you first, uh, the guy would see a, a girl and be interested in her, or the parents would see the girl, point him out to the son, be interested Either way, they would go to her parents and they would arrange the marriage and they would have to come up with the price to be paid as a dowry for Christ to redeem us. It took his own life. It took the blood of Jesus Christ upon a cross as our dowry to win us. But he willingly paid that price. And after he satisfies with the payment, He goes and then he builds a honeymoon suite somewhere near the parents' house or sometimes even attached. Um, Because according to the Jewish law, you could not work or go to war or do anything but just be on an entire year's honeymoon. Does that sound good or what? I didn't get mine, so I may take it here coming up. I don't know. But... So what he would do is he would go back and he would build this thing. What did Jesus say in John 14? I go away to prepare a place, a dwelling for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you so. But I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, certainly I will come again and take you to myself. For where I am, you will be also. And so he goes to prepare a place. Now, what happens is the bride begins to work on the dress and, and get everything ready, but she sends out little spies and they come back going, whoa, they put the roof today on they finished all the stucco and I saw them carrying in some furniture. <gasps> furniture, he's almost done. So she gets her bridesmaids and they all come and they, sl- they stay over at her house. They have a continuous sleepover and they're all in their wedding garments because they don't know when the wedding's going to be. And so once he gets it all finished, he comes to the dad and says, well, dad, inspect it. Tell me, is it done? And "Ah, I don't know. I need to think about it. And the dad is the one that gives the word when the son can go get his bride. And that's what Jesus said. No man knows the day or the hour except my father only. And so the tradition was as the father finally would come on the scene and he would say to the son, usually at midnight or two in the morning, now he's brought His groomsmen with him. And they're all hanging out waiting. And he finally comes and shakes him at 2 in the morning saying, go get her. And they start hitting pots and pans and blowing trumpets and running through the streets. And when they hear the noise, they know they wake up. They take their lamps and they turn them up. And then he crashes through the door like a thief in the night. He snatches his bride away and takes her back to the marriage chamber. Remember Matthew 25, there were 10 virgins with the bride waiting. But when the time came, five of them didn't have oil and they weren't ready. And they had to go buy some oil and they came and then he said, no, you're too late. But we're a part of the marriage ceremony thing. And no, nope, you can't enter in. You can't be a part of it. And so here, finally, the father gives the word. He thunders the word. Go get your bride. Go get your wife-to-be and bring her back to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, there's a couple very interesting points here. He says that she is dressed in her righteous acts. God never ceases to amaze me of how gracious he is. You know, love is kind. Love is good. And we see in the Lord this overwhelming goodness about him. And he says, it's your righteous acts that have made up your wardrobe for this day. Now, we know that apart from Christ, we can do what? Nothing. Paul said in Romans 12, in me, no good thing dwells, O wretched man that I am. Isaiah 64 6 says, but we all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. So we know that in and of ourself to produce a righteousness cannot happen. Now, I need to stop here and make a very important distinction between positional righteousness and then practical righteousness doing of righteous things. First of all, no man can make himself righteous before God. There's no possibility for us doing that because we're too wretched. And this is why the Bible says just in numerous places that the righteousness we must have must be exactly Jesus' righteousness that only He can give us. For example, in Romans 3.22... It says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. In Romans three ten verse 3 and 4. For they being ignorant, referring to the Jews, of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For God is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 and 31. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it's written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And 2 Corinthians 5 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 2 8 through 10, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Philippians 1, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Philippians 3, 9, and being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so there's only one way we can go to heaven, and that is if God gives us his righteousness as a gift. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he took our sins upon himself that then he can proclaim us, declare us righteous even equals to exactly as his righteousness is. And he has done that. Now, the greatest sin that anyone can ever commit is trying to add to that righteousness or earn a righteous standing before God by their own works. Martin Luther said, all religions can be broken down into two, one of faith and one of works. And so it grieves the heart of God when somebody is trying to do good works or religious things to try to make themselves approved to God, trying to make themselves acceptable to God that they might earn their way to heaven. That is a grief. Now, practical righteousness, as born-again believers, we now want to walk righteously or in the right way. What is that way? As God walks, which is in His righteousness. And even then, we have no capability of doing that in and of ourselves. It's only by the power of God's Spirit. It's only by the working of Of God, that such a thing is possible. When my kids were little, three and four years old, you know, they'd say, Oh, you know, I want to go get the groceries out of the car and help out, you know. And of course, here they are, give me the bag, Dad, give it to me, you know. And it's, of course, they can't even carry one can of that without dropping on their foot and hurting themselves. But I would get the grocery bag and I would put it in their arms and then I would carry it. As they walked into the house and they would walk it in and you know oh you know and they'd set it down oh ah, man that was heavy. Us men are carrying in the groceries mom. Because us guys we do the heavy stuff. And off they'd go to get another bag you know. And that's God with us. <laughs> we, he says this is the way I'm going and we say absolutely Lord I'm going in that way and and we go to do righteous things, and, and we do, but it wasn't us. <laughs> we begin to bear good fruit because we're abiding in him, and he in us, and, and men see our good works, and they know right away they glorify our Father in heaven because he's the one who accomplished it through us. However, it is interesting that the Bible does say that we are responsible for those righteous acts. Now that's interesting. Again, if you would, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting there in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take an advantage or defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but holiness. Therefore, he rejects us does not reject man, but God, who has also given us of his Holy Spirit. So he tells you it's your responsibility to be sanctified. So justification is something God does. He gives us the gift of righteousness, just as if we've never sinned. Sanctification is the ongoing practice of righteousness. He says you are responsible to take your body, beat it into subjection, to present your vessel as a vessel of sanctification and honor, your body, your heart, your mind, your soul, and righteousness before God, and this is what He's talking about in Revelation nine, eight. That this clean and bright fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Those saints that have readied themselves for the coming of the Lord by delivering their vessels unto God in righteousness. Now it's interesting because the very next chapter in First Thessalonians chapter five says this in verse twenty three and twenty four. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In the Greek it's emphatic. By himself with no other aid. Without no other help. He's going to sanctify you completely. Your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Who also will do it. Chapter 4 said it's our responsibility to do it. In chapter 5 it makes it very clear that God has 100% of the responsibility to do it. I'm confused. Which is it? It's both. Without Him, we can't. But without us, He won't. God is looking for us to daily deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Him. And as we daily yield ourselves into His will, into His hands, by the power of His Spirit, He will sanctify us in spirit, soul, and body, bringing us more and more into the image of Christ. But if we don't yield our bodies unto the Lord, if we don't surrender ourselves daily to Christ, then it's a stalemate. And that work of sanctification is grinded to a halt. It says in 2 Timothy 2 that in God's house, in the great house, there's vessels of honor and there's vessels of dishonor. And those vessels of honor that are clean, sanctified, set apart for the master's use. These are the robes that we are receiving of our righteous acts, of having given ourselves over in honor to the use of our master. Now, here's an interesting side point. I'm not going to go into detail into it. But in Romans 8, in 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, it tells us that the weight of the glory is in our body, the reward. You say, well, we're rewarded by God for the righteous things we do. What is God going to reward us with? Oh, you get a big mansion. What are you going to use it with? What are you going to do with it? You're not going to sleep. There's no night there. Hopefully, we're not going to use a bathroom with our new bodies. We don't need a kitchen. We're eating with the Lord. What do you need a house for? Well, you get lots of money. What do you need money for? The streets are gold. I think the reward, as you look at Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4, and into 4 and beginning of 5, I believe it's our body, the type of body. I think some people that are... The, As it says in 1 Corinthians 3, everything's burned up but the foundation stays the same. They've got a body that can just soak up a tiny bit of the glory and the insight and the revelation of Jesus in heaven. And I think there's others who have given themselves fully, losing their life in this world, and given themselves fully into the honor of Christ. They're going to have a, a body full of the weight of God's glory and they're going to be able to soak up all of the things that are happening in heaven. There's going to be people in various degrees in between those. And here I think, once again, he's signifying here, according to their righteous acts, they're getting a body, if you would. They're being robed. They're being presented with a robing according to the degree of their own righteous acts that they've been given to. However, we know That being made righteous before God for eternity is something that only Christ can do. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he may present her to himself, that he may present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And then in verse 32, it says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So that whole passage we often teach on marriage. It's not about marriage on this earth. It's about marriage with the Lord is the principle, the first uh, understanding there of that passage. And so Christ is constantly working in us as believers. This morning, He's washing you with the water of the Word right now. He's burning out the chaff in your heart and, and setting you aside in a more holy way yet as we take another step in grow growing in Christ. And, and we need to take this seriously. And that's why it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out. It does not say work for, okay? But in the state of being saved, work out your own salvation with, notice, fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We need to take this seriously that I am a poem, I'm a work of art. God's prepared good works that I should walk in them. I need to take seriously that Christ lives in me and these are His hands, this is His feet, this is His mouth. My life is His life. And I need to wake up every day with a sense of the awe of that responsibility and yield myself to God and not go to the right, not go to the left, but to stay in that narrow road and yield myself to say, God, my life is for you today. And then we walk in those works that he predestined ahead of time that we should indeed walk in them. And of course, this is every leader in the church should have the same passion for the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, For I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So every spiritual leader should have a passion to teach the whole counsel of God and that you'd know all of the scriptures, that you would know Christ in truth, know what he is like and know what he is not like, know what he does like and what he doesn't like, that you would truly live for him in true doctrine in a true godly lifestyle. In Hebrews 13:17 he says, "Obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you." So again realizing the spiritual leaders are trying to present you as that virgin before Christ Without blemish in that day. And so the Lord here is excited, He's coming for His bride, that He's been cleansing her and washing her, preparing her for this very day, to now come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, Jesus talked about that day in in Matthew twenty-six twenty-nine, he said this. There as he's having the last supper, he came to the third cup, which is the cup of redemption, buying them out of slavery he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. But then he comes to the fourth cup in the Jewish seder, which is the cup of praise, saying, we're out of Egypt, we're out of the desert, we're in the promised land. yee take it, and that's their final drink. And the Jewish seder's over. But the Lord comes to that fourth cup of praise, and he said to them in, in Matthew 26, 29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you, In my Father's kingdom. Isn't that radical that we are going to be a part of that final Seder that the Lord had on the earth? He just said, hit the pause button and we're going to wait till everybody gets to heaven and then we're going to finish that meal off with the final drink of the cup of praise. And we're going to be a part of that. And then he says in Revelation 19, these are true sayings of God. He's going to say this over and over again because John's just sort of pinching himself going, this is amazing. It's radical, the wrath of God, perfect justice with no mercy. Whoo, never seen anything like it. And heaven, whoa, look at that. He's getting a peek into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Probably walking around the table looking for his name. Oh, there it is. Whoa, you know, he's he's just radical as he's taking a look at this whole scene. Are you ready for that day? Jesus in Luke 14 and also Matthew 22, he talks about this. A guy shouts out in, in Luke 14 and says, oh, Blessed is those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, let me tell you something. It was like this great man who had a feast and, and he invited people to it and, and they took it lightly. They didn't come. He finally said, go into the highways, the byways, get the lame and the deaf and the wither and the halt and bring them in and, and he said, there's still room. And he said, go back out and find some more and bring them in. For those who are called are not worthy because they didn't present themselves here to come for that very day. And in Matthew 22, he tells another story. If you'd go ahead and turn there to the Gospel of Matthew, verse chapter 22. Matthew 22, there in verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner, my ox and my fatted cattle and killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. and They went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest ceased. His servants treated them spitefully and killed them. And when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed the murderers, and burned up their city. That's Revelation chapter 18, isn't it? 17, 18, and 19. And in verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find invite to the wedding, So those servants went out of the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on wedding garment. Again, what is the wedding garment? It's the righteous acts of the saints. Faith without works is dead. And in verse 12, So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Now notice the the demeanor of the king, which is representative of our Lord, he's not, you know, slurring his words and all upset and you know spitting and oh, what are you doing in here? Huh? He's not some deranged madman. He's very calm. He's very cool, and and he loves this guy and he's friend. How did you get in here without the wedding garments? And then notice what he said. The guy was speechless. And the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God does not rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. And we see it here. Then he ends by saying, Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. They were called by the two prophets, they were called by the 144,000, they were called by the angel. Right now, God is calling. (laughs) Right now, God is calling some to himself. God has brought you here today by his divine power. The Lord repeatedly says, one of the things you're going to see in the day of judgment that's going to be surprising is many will think they are right with God and they are not right with God. Many shall say in that day, Lord, Lord, open also unto me. I'm a part of the wedding party. I just had to go get some oil. I'm here now. Too late. Lord Lord but I prophesied I worked miracles I did cast out demons you name. be gone you doers of iniquity you did not do my will. In Deuteronomy it says there's a type of person who's going to read this law of God and yet he'll say in his mind I don't really have to do it but I'll still be counted as if I did do it. There's always that group of people who says I'm slick. I don't have to follow the rules. I'm clever. I can make it work even if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And he says it's like a drunkard who thinks he'll be counted with a sober. There's people who are living in sin, but they think they'll be counted as a saint. There's people living in uncleanness, but they think they're going to be counted clean. There's people living in immorality, that think they're going to be counted as a moral person. And God is not going to judge you by your wishful thinking. God is not grading on a curve. God is going to judge things for what they really, really are. In a true, just judgment, according to what you've done in your body, good and bad. Every single person. And so hear the Lord again as we go through the book of Revelation said there's a special blessing with this book if you read it you listen to it you study it and I think the big part of the blessing today is this right here a time for us all just to stop and check our hearts and say Lord am I self deceived Lord am I is my heart hard am I, am I just going through a bunch of religious rituals thinking it's going to make up for a real relationship Do I think that going to church is taking the place of living an obedient life? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness, but now is the acceptable time. Today is the right time. Right now, we're in a dispensation of time that God's arms are open wide to everyone saying, come, call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. God's rich to all who call upon his name. Right now, if you're willing to repent, Turn around. You've got to bring forth fruits of repentance. Just don't say, oh, I'm sorry, and then go back and live your own lifestyle. Turn around 180 degrees. Start going the opposite direction and repent. God will look upon your heart, and He'll see that heart of remorse, of godly sorrow, repentance, and He will receive you unto Himself and forgive all of your sins. Friend, are you really in wedding garments or are you not? Are you prepared? Have you, are you the bride who made herself ready? Are you making yourself ready for the coming of the Lord? In Luke 21, he said, pray, Watch and pray always that you be counted worthy to escape all these things, for they'll come as a snare upon all those who are dwelling upon the earth. Well, back in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet, the angel, to worship him. And he said to me, see that you do not do that. He rebukes him sharply. Explanation point. I am your fellow servant. I am your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. The whole spirit of this whole book of prophecy is pointing to Jesus. That's how you know if it's a false teaching. Because the false teachings will point you to Organizations to the Mormon church or the watchtower organization or some organization or to a man. But true word of God causes you to fall in love with Jesus. It puts your eyes upon Jesus. You leave going, I need Jesus. I want more of Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I want to obey Jesus. And he says, look, I am just an angel. And a matter of fact, in Hebrews, it tells us that they're ministering spirits unto us. So actually, angels are below us. They're the ones that minister unto us. What are you doing? Bowing down to me. I'm just a servant like you. Get up. You know, that's a a strong side point to the cults that say Jesus is an angel. Jesus is a created being. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus is the Michael, the archangel. And there's other groups also that say Jesus is an angel of some type. A created being that found himself worthy to be God. He sort of, you know, climbed the ladder and now he's God. Guys, you can't start being God. You either always have existed or you haven't always existed. But you can't start having always existed. Okay, it just does not work. But yet we find all the way through the Gospels, from the very beginning, the wise men came and it says they bowed and they worshiped Jesus. There was no rebuke. In Matthew 8, the leper was cleansed and bowed and worshipped, no rebuke. The synagogue ruler in Matthew 9, no rebuke. The disciples, when the storm was calmed, they worshipped him. And again, there was no correction. The woman at the tomb, after Jesus raised from the dead, they worshipped him, grabbed onto his feet. Again, uh, Jesus had no word of rebuke at all for them. In Matthew 28, 16 and seventy, the disciples, after his resurrection there in Galilee, worshipped him. In John 9, the blind man who was healed worshipped him. And let me tell you something. Jesus himself said in Matthew 4 that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus' own teaching says the only one that can be worshipped is God. But yet when they worshipped him, he didn't rebuke them. Thomas saw Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Thomas, because you see and believe. In Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow. In Romans 14, it says, will bow. (laughs) And those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and at every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? He is Lord. He is God. Well, a little side note there. I'm just a fellow servant. I'm just an angel. You cannot worship an angel. Jesus is no angel. He is God, the second person of the Trinity, our husband. We're going to see very, very soon. And in verse eleven, back in Revelation nineteen, verse eleven. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns, and his he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Many believe that's the Tetragrammaton of the Old Testament, the YHWH, the way we transliterate it into English. Verse 13, he was clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, and clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Woohoo, that's us, guys. How many of you guys like riding horses? How many, if you had a brand new body, would like to ride horses? yeah. <laughs> Seem to get that each service. It's sort of like, oh, that hurt my back, my knee, my leg. Ooh, no way. Yeah, I understand. We're going to be in our brand new bodies on our white horses flying through the air, coming to earth. Woo-hoo! Hi-ho, silver, hang on. It's going to be exciting. In verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he... He should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So now the marriage of the Supper of the Lamb, our seven year feast is over. The tribulation period is now coming to an end and the heavens open and there's our Lord on a white horse. Uh, That's a sign of royalty, authority power the king would ride on the white horse with his sons with him and here he comes and we the bride of Christ also on white horses in Zechariah 14 we know that he lands on the Mount of Olives in verse 3 it says and the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives his face which faces Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, make a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. And uh, the interesting, there's a fault, <laughs> earthquake fault that goes right through the city of Jerusalem exactly the way it describes here. We know eventually a, a river is going to flow from the Mediterranean uh, Sea to, to uh, the Dead Sea. Um, and that whole river is going to be for the healing of the nations. All the vegetation that grows and the leaves and the fruit on it uh, in that millennial reign. He is faithful and true. God has kept every single promise. As a matter of fact, it's his nature. In Second Timothy two verse thirteen, it says, "We are faithless. When we are faithless, he remains faithful, because he can't deny himself. It's his very nature to be faithful. It's his very nature to be true." In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it goes on in that chapter to describe evolution rather than creation. And the fact is, is there is no facts on evolution. Matter of fact, it's not even a theory, it's a hypothesis. And in order for evolution to be true, facts of science would have to be untrue you would have to remove the first law of thermodynamics, which is a fact, not a theory, not a hypothesis. And I'm not going to go off onto that, but the bottom line is you have two choices. You have a belief that the world created itself, or you have a belief that God created the world. And if you look at the evidence, I'm talking the scientific evidence, anybody who thinks has to know that God created this place. You have to turn your brain off and fight against the facts to believe in evolution because it's just so obvious. As a matter of fact, in Romans 1, it goes on to say, no man will have an excuse before God because creation was such a giant sign saying God made this place and about His nature from looking at what He's made. Looking at green grass or a blue blue sky or a little bug, it describes God and and what He's like when you look at His nature compared to what He's made. Not a specific revelation, but a general revelation. But nevertheless, enough revelation to know that there is a God who made this place and you need to know Him. You need to be right with Him. And again, in righteousness, He judges and He makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. He sees all. He knows all. In Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. So he's not judging on partial fact or an impression. He's judging completely inside out. He knows it all. That's why his right his judgment's a righteous judgment. He has all the facts. He knows every attitude of the heart. And on his head are many crowns. Again, There's many things that declare his royalty. So a a king who wears a crown is because he's the king of that one kingdom. But Christ is the king of kings. He's the king of all creation. He's the king of the saints. He's. It goes on and on and on. He has many crowns. And the word here uh, is diadema rather than stephanos in the Greek because there's two different words for crown. Uh, And diadema is the crown of royalty and authority. The other one is Uh, Stephanos is the crown of achievement you earned it he didn't earn anything it's just it's his nature he is the king of kings and the lord of lords and notice that his robe is dipped in blood some say that this is the blood that he shed on the cross and that as he comes now to judge man he's saying look the blood was there for you to be forgiven of your sin but you would not as much as I tried to bring you to repentance, and boy, as we've been going through Revelation, they just kept hardening their heart, cursing God for the plagues and for the difficulties on earth, rather than repenting like Pharaoh just hardened his heart. Some say that this is um, the, the blood Basically saying, look, I'm going into war here. I'm not worried about my garments getting soiled. You know, some are saying, well, he's in battle. Oh, I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to get blood on me. I, you know, I'm going to try to fight without getting soiled here. It's like, I'm already warmed up. I'm ready to get in the middle of the battle. I've already got blood on me. Let's go for it. And some say it's the blood of the saints that he's taking it personal. Remember when Saul was persecuting the church, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. And if the Bible says that every tear we cry, God keeps in a bottle. They're precious to him. How much more the blood of a martyr saint? It says if he kept the blood of the saints and he's saying this is personal because we know that this battle is taking vengeance against those who were martyred for Christ's name. And so he's like putting the blood on saying this is a personal battle between me and those who have persecuted uh, my saints and again, the name, the Word of God. That's a familiar statement, huh? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the armies in heaven, that's us. In Colossians 3, 4, it says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. In 1 Thessalonians three thirteen. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. With who? All the saints. We're coming with him. And out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. We know about that, don't we? In Hebrews 4.12 it says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints of the marrow, the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart the sword of the spirit Ephesians 6:17 is the word of god i find it interesting that the lord comes in battle what does he have a sword but we know it's the word of god who are we how are we decked out for battle in linen robes bright and clean the weapons of our warfare are not carnal it says in Second Corinthians 10, but are mighty in God pulling down strongholds. And we see it again. It's the word of God. In, Ro- in John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus said that very thing to those who wouldn't believe in him. In John 12, 48, he says, he who rejects me does not receive and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. I wonder in battle if it's as if the voice of the Lord comes. And he speaks to these people. And he says to this person, February of 2005, you went to Calvary Chapel, San Diego. And the pastor there preached on Revelation 19. And and you heard of my love for you, you heard of your need for repentance, and you wouldn't repent. You rejected my word, and now just as he spoke, just as the word said, so you are condemned. And then, boom, he kills over dead. The very word that was spoken to him, it's this very word right now, is the very word that will either heal you, or later it will be a sword that kills you. We know in Second Thessalonians two eight of the Antichrist, that man of lawlessness, it says, and then the lawless one will be revealed him. The Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. Destroy with the brightness of his coming. And that breath of his mouth is the word of God. Who is he? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he treads out the winepress of the wrath almighty. In chapter 14 it says that the blood goes up to the bridle of the horse. In a 200 mile direction. A radius. And in verse 17 there in Revelation 19, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the flesh of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free, slave, both small and great. In verse 19, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, the armies, Gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horses against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword that proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We're going to see next week in chapter 20 more on this judgment um, of the Antichrist and of the beast, as well as others on the earth. We're going to rewind and go back and see the actual judgment day. But here we see him coming and, and uh, generally stating the, the fact that he comes And he comes with his saints. He comes with his holy angels. And he comes and they're positioned in a battle against him. It doesn't say he came in a battle against them. But they were against him. And then it doesn't say there necessarily uh, was this fighting going on. It just says there was a war and he won. Um, I don't think that anybody can really even stand a second in the ring with the Lord. And he just does them in and slays them. And then there's this angel who's standing in front of the sun calls all the birds. Now remember the whole earth is in a cataclysmic upheaval because all the bowls of God's wrath that we saw poured out a few a couple weeks back. And so they're flying around, probably not having a place to land, not finding any food, and he calls all the birds that are on the earth to come to the valley of Armageddon. And there uh, we saw in chapter 14 where the blood was risen up to the bridle of a horse 200 miles in circumference. And there they came to eat the flesh of men and of the horses and everything that was there. And so I find it quite interesting that there's two suppers here in this chapter. One is the supper with those who are in right relationship with God And the other is those who become supper, who are not in right relationship with God. There's one who the Lord speaks, well done, good and faithful servant, speaks to his bride, come away, my love, come away, my fair one, we see in the Song of Solomon, enter into my chambers, I am my beloved, he is mine, his banner over me is love. We see the preciousness of the Lord speaking to his wife. And the other one we see in judgment with the sword of his mouth, slaying them with the word that he had spoken to them, being judged in condemnation, being put to death. And then we're going to see next week they're judged to the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. The hell was not made for man. It was made for the devil and his angels, but man's going to go there because he would not submit himself to the will of God. And so the question is, You're going to be at one of those mills. Which one is it? This is why I believe the Lord has the book of Revelation, for us to continue to ask that question. Am I like one of those that want to believe I'm in right relationship with God, but I'm really not? You see, there are some people that come to church thinking, this will make up for the fact that I'm not living daily for the Lord. Guys, coming to church does not make up for that. It's great that you come together. The Bible says, don't forsake the gathering, the gather of the brethren, especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. But it doesn't make up for a day-to-day-to-day submitted life of obedience to Christ. Either you know Him now and are walking intimately with Christ now, or you will never walk with Him in eternity. And so the question is today, is your life truly submitted to Him? And does it show? Does your life show that you're submitted to Him, to His will, to His wants, to His desire, to His righteousness, to His holiness? The Old Testament, it says there's a man, there's a type of person that looks at the holy commandments of God. And even though he knows he's not obeying them, he says in his mind, Even though I'm disobeying them, I will still be counted as if I am obeying them. And he gives the analogy there in Deuteronomy saying, like a drunken man who believes he'll be counted with the sober. And so there are people living in uncleanness, but they're just so sure, you know, the roll of the dice, woohoo, you know, I'm going to be counted with the clean they're gambling with eternity and they're going to find themselves out. If you are not actively, presently making yourself ready for that wedding day, constantly looking to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, you will not be ready. There's not going to be an accidental stumble, slip into heaven. You are either right with God or you are not There's not going to be this group of people in this gray area that, you know, "Ah, I still got to figure that one out. God knows. Either you are living for him or you're not. Either you're submitted to his will or you're doing your own will. And God today is arms open wide to anyone who will come. Let them come. We are in the dispensation of time on planet earth that anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That God's rich to all who call upon his name. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word right now. And Lord, we do know the absolute truth about you and about salvation. And today, Lord, there's many here that you've brought sovereignly by the power of your spirit to just love on them for a little bit. To let them know that they're not right with you and not that you're wanting to condemn them. Quite the opposite. You didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. That you're turning the light on in their heart, in their mind, in their life. Not to condemn them or to point the finger in judgment. Quite the opposite. That you could receive them unto yourself as the bride of Christ. As all heads are bowed this morning, and you're here today and you're saying, that's me. I've wanted to pretend that even though I'm living as a drunk, I'd be counted along with a sober. Even though I know I'm living in uncleanness and unrighteousness and sin, I would still be counted as if I were a saint. It's me that's going to say, Lord, Lord, please, please. Open unto me. Don't be deceived. Don't be self-deceived. Submit your life right now. First, repent. God, forgive me. Forgive me for choosing religion rather than relationship. Forgive me for choosing uncleanness rather than cleanness. Forgive me for choosing my self-will and my own plan rather than your will and your plan. And Lord, from this day forward, I submit myself to your will. No longer my will, but your will. And now give yourself wholly to God, completely to God. Surrender yourself now. God, I give myself wholly, completely, entirely into your hands. Take me. From this day forward, God, I'm going to do your will. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And bless all the saints who have heard your word today in truth. And thank you for the power of your word. Your word goes out and heals us, that your word washes us. And you did that today, Lord, making us ready for your coming making us a bride in clean linen, pure, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. And what else do we say? Hallelujah. You know, before you head out today, if you prayed that prayer, grab somebody's hand around you and said, you know, I prayed that prayer today, and, and I just want to thank the Lord for touching my heart. And if you need prayer for anything else, the elders, the pastors will be here if you need to know how to get started in a Christian walk. And also meet somebody new and say, hey, what's something I can pray for you throughout the week? Tonight, communion, Leviticus 19, and a seek the Lord in prayer. God bless you. Bye-bye.